health lessons from a doctor with 37 years of medical practice, most of which were spent in the functional medicine space. And she's my old doctor before she retired. That is today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show number 339. And I am thrilled to have uh, someone who was my doctor for quite a few years, the wonderful Dr. Mignot, now retired from medicine and now rocking it as a silver haired model, um, doing fabulous things, and as a health advocate on Insta. And I just love this incarnation for Min because she is not someone who retires and then just stops doing things. There's always a new incarnation. And as you dig into her passions, she is a concert level violinist and a doctor of 37 years. Uh, so when someone's had nearly four decades in functional medicine, uh, you, you have to ask the question, what can you teach me about my health? And what I love about today's show is what you're going to discover is that it is a lot simpler than you think. And uh, sometimes we are in save the day mode and really tough chronic puzzles. But as we move through those, the things that help us sustain good health truly are able to be boiled down to very simple practices. Uh, and uh, she and I dive into what those are quite conversationally today, because we're both so passionate about these aspects of essentially leading a low-tox life. Uh, and so I'm going to hook into that conversation in a little bit, uh, but uh, I mentioned she was a concert violinist as well. And I had forgotten to say, uh, she's also a, a certified yoga teacher. Uh, and she's a devoted uh, mama to Mimi, the red toy poodle, who is a Delta therapy dog. So um, Min's heart is big. Her love for her patients was massive and you could feel it in the way she practiced. And I'm so thrilled to bring her to you today, which I shall do in a little minute. But of course, we can't put on this wonderful weekly show without our sponsors. And we have the special sponsor for, for July is BioFirst. They are back with and offering across their whole range, which is 10%, oh, sorry, $10 off any order over $65. And the code is winter. But I just wanted to highlight the defense products in their beautiful genuine natural remedies range. Uh, they have skin issue products, immune support and general wellness. But I wanted to highlight the Manuka Defense Syrup and Spray, which are really great daily insurance policies in winter. They also taste delicious. Uh, and it's that gorgeous Manuka honey, of course. Um, and then they have the Kick It Up a Notch um, 
formulations that are to uh, support you when you're really not feeling so well in the Manuka Soother Syrups for adults and kids, different formulations. There is no alcohol, there are no fillers, no colours or flavours, and I have extra information about both of those ranges and what makes them so special on the show notes today. Uh, But something I can tell you is it's a wonderful Australian family business their passion for truly low-tox healthcare is, it shines through in everything that they do. I know a lot of you have loved the Manuka Skin Saver, the Ultra Sensitive uh, Skin Saver as well, which is one of their newer products for the ultra sensitive skins among us. And if you haven't tried their Manuka Soother and Defense ranges, uh, I would highly recommend them. They certainly uh, felt good towards the end of my last bout of COVID. That is for sure as I tucked in. Um, so you have that $10 off any order across their whole range, by the way, not just the Manuka Defence and Soother Syrups, um, with the code WINTER. And, of course, our major sponsor, which is OzClimate. So ozclimate.com.au, your code is LOTOXLIFE and your all-year-round offer is 10 extra percent off their already discounted prices. I love OzClimate. I love working with them. I love promoting these products. And I think the reason is because it's changed my life to have an active dehumidification and air purification strategy as we've moved in and out of water-damaged buildings and as we've worked to then prevent mould once we were in a dry building. Very, very important. I get so many text messages about, what do I do to prevent the mould on my windowsills or in my bathroom or how do I clean it off? And uh, I would love a world where we don't have to worry about cleaning the mould off because we're really working in that prevention space. I made mum and dad get a uh, dehumidifier, the cool seasons one for mum's bedroom because she gets a lot of condensation in the winter months and it is making a world of difference there already. They just got it last week as I record this, uh, so probably last month once this goes live. Um, but I get so many fantastic reports and that cool seasons one isn't just for cool seasons. It's actually all year round. It's just that it works to draw air and moisture, uh, sorry, moisture out of the air also in the cooler climates. So if you have a cooler climate situation in the wintertime, I would definitely look at that one if you're experiencing window condensation. Uh, your code is LOTOXLIFE, your discount is 10%, and I hope you enjoy and make the most of that. Now, let's talk about health uh, generally, specifically with the wonderful Dr. Minyo. I hope you enjoy. Min, hello. Hello, Alex. So good to see you. It's good to see you. I know, through the screen and not at the doctor's office like I used to come and see you uh, before you retired from medicine. Uh, And it's a joy to have you here on the show because, well, I know in the patient context, but also in the functional medicine community, uh, how much you know. And I wanted to share some of that. But what I find interesting is you're also very comfortable in the not knowing and everyone's actually just doing their best a lot of the time, especially when new things come up. And so we're going to unpack a whole bunch of different things uh, as we chat. But I firstly want to ask, what have you done today to already support feeling good? Well, um, I always wake up and uh, like Oprah says, you're lucky if you can put your two feet on the ground and walk to the bathroom because many 
can't, and, and you know that's true. Secondly, I drink tons of coffee, which is not necessarily medical advice, but it seems to suit me. I'm a slow metabolizer, so I kind of load, and then I don't have any more for the rest of the day. Um, so I have a fair amount of black coffee. I go outside and try and get some sun exposure, whatever sun exposure I can get in Melbourne, and uh, drink a cup of tea, do a little bit of gardening, and uh, sit on the floor, actually, to try and just open up the hips, etc. And uh, it's a movement, and then I have one sort of hopefully inspirational saying for the day, which I normally share on Instagram to try and set me up right. And then, of course, life happens. So uh, that's kind of how I start the day. Yeah, nice. And when you say, and then life happens, is that just kind of always allowing for the variables of the day and and how things change sometimes? Yeah, because, you know, um, things happen, things go wrong, things don't go as you plan, stuff, you know, life happens, stuff happens, and you just kind of have to roll with it and deal with it as best, well, I try and deal with it as best I can anyway. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. And, And what drew you to being a doctor back in the day? Was it, a, was it a parent thing or was it a Min wants to be a doctor thing? Okay, so that's the long answer. Um, <laughs> so, um, give you a little bit of context. I remember once upon a time my patient actually said to me, if you ever want the truth about something, ask a retired person. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and he goes, I'm telling you, Min, it's true. So here it is. Um, I was actually born in Singapore and I never did well at school. In fact, I kind of averaged a 20% doing well. So sometimes I get 3% for a test. And that sort of structure very, very difficult. And as a result, I think my parents thought perhaps a change is as good as a holiday when we came to Australia. And uh, because they studied in Australia, they thought perhaps a different sort of less restrictive system would do better. So I came at 14. And at my particular school, we were, and it wasn't a Steiner school or anything, um, I felt actually heard and seen. And uh, they kind of liked my quirkiness and the way I thought about things differently. And it was actually celebrated rather than dampened. And I did okay. Um, I think that was always the expectation that I would uh, go to university. And, uh, you know, now that you know my background, I kind of eventually, and my great love is basically the creative arts. Mm-hmm, I know. And, uh, and uh, I basically said, and now that's in context, it's probably a bit clearer, if I get the marks to go to medicine, which I'm highly unlikely to do, um, I'll do it. And I never thought of it. And um, then I mostly got B's, but I got 100 for music. So um, that tipped me in medicine territory. And I thought, OMG. Um Okay, then it's just Melbourne and not any other university and I won't get in. And the thing is, I was too proud to not keep my word. So I did. And there were some very, very dark years. So here's the story now. Some very dark years which have informed me because it is quite a structured, very um, didactic system, if you like. In terms of studying medicine? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of studying medicine. And... um, very factual and very almost immovable. Mm. Like no no space for grey and interpretation and, yeah, okay. So that was really difficult. Um, uh, but overall I think, you know, I always talk to people when they're thinking about changing careers, 
transferable skills. So the transferable skill is that I like people. I like communicating with people. I like to understand people. I think that's what the arts are about, etc. And hopefully if you go to anything useful or beautiful or creative, you come out a different person, perhaps inspired, perhaps hopeful, perhaps a different perspective. And that's what I've tried to kind of bring to medicine in a consult. And that's where I finally found my groove, I think, in functional medicine. And I loved it. I must tell you, I loved it and I loved my patients. Mm. And that's the problem. And they definitely loved you. There were a lot of very sad people when you decided to leave Sydney. I can tell you that. Me, my brother-in-law, a few people in the low-tox community. I still miss men, I hear comments. So you were very loved as a doctor, I can tell you that. Well, uh, I really loved them too. I really did. I just really want them to know this. And and that's really uh, the foundation of, for me, being a good doctor. It feels like someone's in your corner, not just a, a doctor sharing facts and telling you what to do, but a real coach in that sense of like, I, I really want to see you succeed in, in health. And, um, and I think that's something that I always insist people search for until they find it. When people are like, oh, what doctor should I see? Well, sometimes you're going to find that you gel with that person more than this person. You've got to wait until you don't stop until you find your team. Um, someone who really loves you and wants to see you well and you feel it when you're in their office um, because that is what's going to help get the results, not just the granular stuff that you you actually do and learn about your biochemistry or whatever, right? That needs to be there, of course. But I think you do need somebody who's who's got your back, who's in your corner, who, who actually believes you for the first thing, believes you. Yeah, um, that's huge. It's huge just because, you know, you might describe a constellation of symptoms that I'd never heard about. Um, it's not like I didn't ever learn about that in med school. It doesn't exist. Um, at least listen, and after a while, if you keep seeing that pattern, you go, okay, well, maybe there's something in this. And uh, so a lot of it's pattern recognition, medicine's pattern recognition to a large degree. Um, but you need to know which questions to ask and what clues to pick up on. And um, I think you can see my face lighting up because I really, really love that aspect of it. And um, sorry to rave, but the thing I loved about functional medicine was, you know, maybe just sitting down and um, going through, like with the IFM model, going through a person's history as to what brought it to them. So, you know, their grandmother, their mother, how they were born, where they were born, blah, blah, blah. And all the things that might have added up to them finally reaching this point. And you know what? I don't know, but I think the actual process of doing it, which might take an hour, is actually therapeutic for the patient because they get a few aha moments. And, and it's very helpful for us as well. And you know what? It's taught me so much. It's taught me so much about people. Yeah, taking that that thorough history. It comes up so often, Min, when I'm talking to different practitioners. I was running an inflammation masterclass with the lovely naturopath Jules Galloway recently for our membership. And we did a timelining expert exercise uh, where she talked through a couple of case studies and the timelining simply revealing different stressors that came to the body and mind at different times that really 
notched up, something that was maybe already lingering and there underneath. And all it needed was a really stressful event or a grievous event to bring it out into the fore. And uh, I agree with you when you say sometimes that process alone makes it's sweet relief. I I still remember being 28 years old, seeing a naturopath for the first time, sitting in this office and Christine literally asking me questions for an hour, nonstop, just asking, 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 asking. And I'd never experienced that in healthcare before. Uh, I'd never actually experienced someone wanting to hear me and what I had to say. And that completely shifts things, I think, in, in terms of having a chance at getting better. Um, you know, they always say the power is in the question when you're talking sales, when you learn business, uh, you know, ask questions, don't talk, <laughs> you don't need to hear you talk. Questions mean you're listening and then it reveals how you then need to proceed in sales nego- and sales negotiations. It comes up in all facets of business. But why are we so uh, behind in mainstream medicine on that basic, basic principle, because of course it works in medicine as well, asking a ton of questions. It's how you learn. It's how you learn about the person in front of you and how best to proceed. And so functional medicine, we hear a lot of different terms. We hear integrative medicine, functional medicine, integrative medicine practitioner, which does not mean you have a a doctor's degree, by the way. Um, It can actually mean a number of things these days because different colleges offer different certifications that aren't necessarily um, recognised. What is the difference, key difference, between an integrative doctor and a functional medicine doctor? Is there one? I think there is. Um, And I think I've learned it through personal growth I suppose so let's go back one step I would suggest that maybe a hundred years ago doctors actually listened for a long time that's all we could do um being facetious but it's true we really listen to a patient and that is the art of, of medicine now integrative medicine can actually it just simply means the blending of uh complementary therapies which are hopefully uh evidence-based like acupuncture, meditation, whatever, um, and it's blended. But you can still do it within a medical constraint. So asthma, oh, that's the protocol. You take this supplement, that supplement, the other supplement. There you go. So there's a slight danger of um, replacing uh, prescribing allopathic medicine with prescribing lots of herbs or supplements or whatever it may well be. So it can still work within the same framework. Whereas let's just talk about functional medicine, and I, I probably speak about IFM functional medicine, not sponsored, but um, because and, and for the people who don't know IFM, what does that mean? Oh, that's the Institute for Functional Medicine, and it's one of the big institutions, I suppose, in the USA, and they do actually have a functional medicine unit at the Cleveland Clinic which is by an IFM doctor. It gives a good, it's not the be all and end all, but it gives a good basic grounding, in my opinion. So you see someone who's been trained by IFM, you know that they've had a certain amount of, what I consider reasonable training. So functional medicine, in my opinion, and uh, is that we think in large sort of concepts of, uh, or yeah, large concepts. So let's just take inflammation. So I'll say, pretend I've got a socket, which I do. And, um, and I think, okay, so the integrative way would be, oh, let's just take some, oh, 
the conventional way might be, okay, get some physiotherapy, get x-ray, whatever, maybe take some non-steroidals, maybe take some Panadol, uh, maybe get a massage, maybe see an uh, exercise physiologist, all completely reasonable in the acute phase. Other medicine approach may be, okay, so if you have some arthritis, there have been a lot of papers that suggest um, gut health um, can, can play a part. We look at inflammation all over the body. So we look, okay, have you got gingivitis? What's your diet like? Do you eat chips every day? Um, do you have, you know, if you decrease all of these just a little bit, possibly that need for so much, you know, mozzarella, et cetera, may di diminish. So we're looking at broad concepts, you know, because the whole body is interrelated. So if you decrease inflammation in the mouth, in the um, in your diet, in the environment, we're looking at pollution, all of these things, they slowly add up, in my opinion, to a significant change. So like, you know, what's the difference between a great painting or great... So, so when you're actually looking at, say, a great artist or a great musician, what the difference is, it's all the small details. It's the subtlety. It's not just their brilliant technique. Great. You know, it's like great biochemistry. But it's all the subtlety. And that adds up to a whole that is just wondrous. And to me, that's the same sort of parallel that we would get with, with functional medicine. Um, and I suppose that's why I love it so much. But, you know, a lot of the onus in all of this comes to the patient. They we might guide them, but they need to make those changes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so basically it's the emphasis on the whole life and how it's being lived and all the components of it to address the little things that come up instead of sending you home with like five supplements for pain or, you know, it may be required for now, but what else is happening that could be causing these recurrent niggles all over the body in different ways and places? Is that have I got that? You've absolutely got that. And that's why I love you so much because you are so succinct <laughs> in how you actually describe stuff. But you're absolutely correct. That's and my pattern recognition skill. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's that's the main difference. And I suppose it's evolution. You might start with allopathic medicines, a doctor, then you go into integrative medicine, you learn different concepts. And then finally, hopefully, uh, you, you think about the whole. And can I say one more thing? I suppose that's my whole purpose on social media at the moment is I just would love, you know, tips that a functional medicine doctor would love the general public to know, the basic stuff that you can do to improve your health. Mm. So in terms of the basic stuff, this, this is great because, you know, we always think we need to learn some huge aha that no one's ever thought of before or reveal some new crazy fancy test that no one's ever had before that's going to be the key to everybody feeling better you know in really complex situations and often if you go back and you say you're getting sunlight every morning or at least you know cloud covered sky outside are you you know, are you making sure that you have some dips in go, go, go during your day so that you get to calm down and chill out a couple of times, even just for 10 minutes? And often the answer to those basics is no. So what do we know for sure that helps us hit the biggest markers when we're looking after the whole? Because what we know for sure is stuff everybody and anybody can do 
to some degree in their own life, no matter what they're going through, right? Absolutely. I uh, Most of the time, that's absolutely true. So, um, you know, I, th- I think sometimes when I've had some consult where people have come to see me and um, I've loved seeing them and I thought, oh, gee, I wish you'd done this first because then we can go to step two much faster. So I wish you'd done this first is the basics. And I think people underestimate including myself in the past, how powerful these basics are. So real food, minimally processed. Yeah, okay, there are going to be some people that can't eat this and can't eat that. That's where you might see a, a specialist doctor or a doctor uh, with an interest in functional medicine who might be able to tweak that, etc. Okay, so maybe some people can't eat, I don't know, tomatoes, say. Um, but as a rule of thumb, if you eat unprocessed or minimally processed food, um, that is huge. Um, I also want to say that white pasta and white noodles, gluten-free or not gluten-free, are very processed. People think this falls in the Mediterranean diet. Hello. No. I mean, pizza does not count, Um, no matter what, unless it's a cauliflower base, right? (laughs) But (laughs) most of the time... Pizza doesn't count. Um, I feel so strongly about this because I think a lot of people have been misled or have have misinterpreted uh, the so-called Mediterranean diet. Um, No. Well, they think Mediterranean Italians eat lots of pasta. But there's something very different from a locally milled whole wheat that's ground at a local little mill um, which is sort of minimally processed, if you like, no bleaching or any of that. And then the nonna just mixing it with an egg and a little bit of olive oil or water and rolling it out and cooking it fresh. That is a very different scenario to a box of dried pasta that's been sitting on a supermarket shelf transported in soft plastic across two continents, uh, you know, with phthalate exposure and all the rest that comes to it. And I think we have to understand um, like manual um like home style processing versus huge food production chain logistics chain processing and all of the added petroleum and energy that comes with that style you know what I mean I think there's almost like a and if you're going to do that every now and then why don't you learn to make fresh pasta and make it a really nice little event in the family and find a local wheat farmer or, you know, gluten-free buckwheat flat farmer if you're gluten-free. And there are ways to have your treats in a way that actually bring the, um, I don't know, the like the magic of what that food actually is in its basic form to your family kitchen. And and am I wrong in saying that that would be okay every now and then? I think you are completely correct in saying that would be okay every now and then. And I think the whole thing is your your labeling of it, which is cool. It's a treat. It's not an everyday, like if you ate pasta and absolutely nothing else, that would not be nutritionally sound. Um, you know, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, you know, I know for sure minimally processed food. So you're probably better off uh, eating maybe almonds whole or you could process those almonds yourself by making almond butter. But if you have something like, uh, I don't know, uh, chocolate-coated almonds with popcorn from the um, 
from the microwave, um, that's probably not ideal for your health. So minerally processed, loads of vegetables. I know the carnivore's not going to like me, but loads of vegetables of all different colors with a lot of variety. I think that's, if you start there, many people, not everyone, it's not enough, but it's a good start. That's where you can start. Second, clean air. Yeah, you're um, big on your clean air. I'm big on my clean air. I've been big on my clean air even before the last two or three years. So bushfires, there's been air pollution from, from vehicles. I suppose what we used to call in the old days sick building syndrome. All of these things, we really do have a huge impact on someone's health. So I think we need to be aware of what we do and what we breathe um, when, when, when we're thinking about our health. Because, I mean, honestly, you can just get it straight into your bloodstream, like some of the small particles. But it's what people smoke, right? You can get it straight into your bloodstream. Um, the stuff that you breathe, it's been associated with, you know, strokes, heart disease. And then some people who are higher, highly sensitive are very sensitive to um uh you know bacteria and mold and, and water water damaged buildings. So I think um it's important that ideally we can live in a home that's that's clean for want of a better word, you know, that you don't have festering walls which got bacteria and mold and you know maybe a load of chemicals. Well, yeah, all the modern building materials add a whole extra wave of um, being the opposite of clean air for many years, sometimes off-gassing. Correct. So, and look, I mean, we, I love, I love your concept of low-tox as opposed to no-tox. Yes, we have to live in this world and maybe we can change the system a little bit, but on the grassroots level, some people actually need a filter. Um, which, of course, then, like we discussed at one stage, adds to landfill, et cetera. But uh, I think some people actually really do need it. For- yeah. And I think in the city or, I mean, you know, I, I talk about it a lot because uh, Oz Climate is one of our, our podcast sponsors and I love the work they do. They do their best to, you know, um, make really long-lasting appliances as well. And I was talking to... Um, Russell, the head technician, co-founder, right, right when we first started working together. And I said, you know, I want to talk about the city because I think that's really, um, really important to have some, some air insurance, literally for your inside home, um, because of everything that you can be assaulted by every which way in the city when it comes to the air, but also, agriculturally, if you live regionally and you have a lot of farmers using a lot of synthetic inputs, I mean, we know that the principal uh, pesticide used in farming McDonald's uh, potatoes has a directive for the farming families who work on those lands to stay indoors for approximately two weeks after application. Uh, I mean, you know, that's like... (laughs) That's not good. And then you're a neighbour. You might not be farming McDonald's potatoes, but your neighbour is. And so you're outside and your kids are playing. And I'm not saying this to freak anyone out, but it's just to kind of realise that we have considerations to make about the clean cleanliness of our indoor air 
over a number of living situations, both regionally and in the cities, with the modern inputs of this world while they are the way they are. Hopefully the groundswell will mean they change. But until then, I I really think we need that insurance. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I do. Uh, I I guess, yeah, sometimes I feel a bit heavy-hearted because I do know that I'm contributing a little bit to landfill Mm. with my purpose. Yeah, I get Um, it. But it's a matter of, you know, staying alive. Like um, I've done in a few reels. Yeah. Uh, Well, you'd contribute a whole lot more to landfill if you needed to be in hospital for asthma attacks and other respiratory lung related things for weeks on end, IVs, beds, all the things that we know are so wasteful and yet so um, important in acute medicine. Like I think we can all only do the best we can and that's a huge part of the mental health aspect of wanting to do better for people and planet. Sometimes you can kick both out of the park and and score a fantastic goal. And sometimes it's a way up of what the best thing to do for now might be while you work on something bigger. Of course. And I think that's the best attitude. I love that attitude that you have. Um, It stops people being paralyzed, Um, paralyzed by grief or paralyzed by fear or all the rest of that. Hopefully that helps people not to be so fearful. And obviously, you know, I think I know for sure clean water is special. Um, that our waterways are clean, that what comes out of our taps are hopefully free of heavy metals. Um, And I think movement is important. I don't want to call it exercise because that's really off-putting for some people. I mean, Uh, who actually feels motivated by the word exercise? A tiny percentage of people enjoy the sound of that word. Really, when you talk to people, they're like, oh, yeah, I've got to exercise. Like that's the that's the sentence, right? Um, whereas I get to play tennis, you literally like would have to peel me off the court, practically dying of shortness of breath before I said, yeah, I'm done. Like that's how much I love it. And so you've got to find ways to move that you really love, that feel like a celebration of the fact that you get to move in your life, right? Absolutely. And that and so what does it look like for you, Min? What's your favourite way to move? Oh, well, I've learned to, at the end of the day, I've learned, it keeps going back to the same thing. My favourite way to move is probably yoga. And um, I've done damage to my hip, actually, probably because I was trying to find a shortcut <laughs> and there's no shortcuts in life. I was trying to go, okay, well, this yoga practice, it takes hours, you know, maybe I'll do something much faster, like some hit and I won't bother to stretch. And I think I'll just concentrate on legs every day or that sort of thing. And guess what? Injury. So I've learned to probably do that. The second thing I like doing as well, and I used to tell all my patients to do, is the seven-minute workout because everyone goes, hey, no time. Well, everyone's got seven minutes probably to do a little bit. And uh, each little exercise from it's 35 seconds. So, and it makes it, I mean, let me just uh, say as well, for some people with chronic fatigue, they cannot move and they doing some exercise is going to be detrimental to them and it's a real thing. So I'm not suggesting any of them, you know, do star jumps, but there's some exhilarating sort of childlike wonder of doing a star jump, which is part of the uh, seven-minute workout. Um, 
you know, have fun. You gotta have fun as best you can. Um, I think that's that's key. You know, I'm so serious all the time. But I think we need to try and find fun ways. Got to be like a kid again. Yeah, I love that. And and uh, so many times you see middle aged people reconnecting to things in their childhood, seeking them out. Um, you know, we call it a midlife crisis, but I often think it's middle-aged people just going, oh gosh, I'm not having any fun here, you know? And uh, like, I think that's actually, there's there's no crisis in that. What a fantastic awakening. It, what, what about a reframe there to say, oh, so what does fun look like for you? What was fun when you were 16 that you could bring back in in some way? Uh, and that re- rediscovering that childlike vibe, I think, in your 40s, early 50s, when often you've been so functional in getting kids born and keeping them alive and you know, <laughs> getting them through school and, and or getting your career really happening. There's so much in middle age that's so um, responsible, I think, isn't there? And, yeah, and too much responsible. Too much responsible, yeah. Yeah, that said, like I said, um, to one of my patients, actually, yeah, have fun, uh, make changes, take a chance, but, you know, don't be suicidal. In other words, don't completely ruin yourself. You know, don't uh, don't be so foolhardy that you you truly hurt yourself. Like if I took up, I suppose, uh, drag racing, right? That's like, I'd probably kill myself. Um, but, you know, for some other people with better driving skills. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah yeah you know just maybe a little bit uh, of circumspection and and that brings me to that next point I suppose of who do I listen to to know the truth ah you really just went straight into the next thing I wanted to ask you because this is confusion for people so you mentioned you you even said oh the carnivals will hate me for this but eat lots of vegetables okay so we have different diets. We have different doctors now able in social media to be in silos with their followings. And really it's just this competition to convince your followers more that your thing is the thing to do with, you know, diet wise or whatever. And there are some amazing doctors who really go across all the things that are great. Focus on the overlaps. That's my favorite space to play as well. Um, that everyone can then interpret into their own way. But so much of what is hurting our wellness space, I think, is this silos and completely right, completely wrong idea of of where to arrive and who to believe. And then you, you almost end up with this guru-like dynamic um, where then if you question the guru, that's not good. Or, you know, you, you go, oh yeah, I really like what you're saying, but I also, like, oh, well, what they're saying is wrong because, you know, and how do we as a regular Joe decide what to eat even these days? Um, when these people are fighting, especially the chronic illness people, who, you know, this is the diet for autoimmune disease. No, no, this is the diet. You've got to go raw vegetables. This is the diet. You've got to go full carnivore. This, That's what's going to heal you. And people end up the victims of a hyper-productized guru-style wellness space 
Um, and it's worrying to me. So as someone who digs through research all the time, like what are, what would you love for someone to know about how to seek the truth out for themselves? Oh, gosh. It's I a big so- question, sorry. but a big question. It's yeah. a big question. I think seeking truth, I mean, isn't that what we're all seeking? Isn't that what every person is in, in all aspects of life? But here's the thing. I think... What I look for is someone that's a little bit circumspect, who doesn't kind of go, I've got all the answers and this is what it is. Follow me. I've got it all. I think when when I see that or hear that, my um, alarm bells go off a little bit. And I go because it, to me anyway, and I could be wrong, um, it signifies maybe a little bit of reluctance to move, a little bit of reluctance to evolve a little bit of reluctance to learn more because I've got all the answers. So I think that's number one. I'm a little bit careful about that. I do listen to what they have to say, even if you don't completely agree, because most of the time it's something that's vaguely useful. But what I think is reasonable is probably all the things that I said before was stick with um, the basics. If you need to explore further, find your team in person. Um if, if possible, uh, not some random person on Instagram who doesn't know you, who doesn't know your story, who doesn't know your ins and outs. They're guides, guidelines, but they're not going to be the answer for you. Have a sauna and you will be well. Well, some people actually just can't have a sauna. Um, do these exercises and you'll be great. Well, you know, some people will collapse after that. So I think it needs to be individualized, but I think if you stick with the basics for most people, clean air, clean water, clean food, as your hand often says, that will get you a long way. It might not be enough, but it will get you a long way, and then it can then be tweaked. Fasting, I mean, what is fasting? I mean, some people call it time-restricted eating. Some people fast two days a week. Some people fast for three days. Some people fast for 21 days. It all has to be individualized. If you weighed um, 38 kilos in your my height or something like that, and you tried fasting for 21 days, I think that's a really bad idea, even if you do have diabetes. Um, so I think it needs to be individualized. Um, and there's so many sort of experts and well-meaning people trying to give advice online. Um, so that's one thing I think one has to keep in mind. These silos are... Maybe listen to what they have to say, but maybe don't get sucked down one particular path. Um, that's my five cents. Uh, the second thing is, for me, I'm, I'm doing a lot less of it, but here's the thing, I don't think even you realised it, but when I was actually practising every weekend, I'd probably spend five hours a day, which was really hard for me because I'm not a bookie type person, looking at all the literature at two or three hours every morning before going to work to look at the literature from nature, cell, science. Those are the three sort of sciencey type um, basic sciences journals. And then I suppose uh, some of the conventional ones as well. But I'd probably look at that. And my main driver was really uh, to get the patients well. So um, to try and work out how, how can we help this person? Remember, one of the things that has never left my mind from my dad, actually, who's an engineer, put out problems on basic principles. So that's why it's so important to know the physiology, the immunology, 
and the biochemistry before you do anything. There's no protocol as such. It's a guide. But there's not because you need to know why could this work? Why? What is the mechanism? It takes time. It takes time. I must say that I don't do it now um, because I'm no longer a practitioner. But what I do look at is things to improve my own health um, so that I can live as healthily as I can um, for as long as I can um, whilst I'm still here on earth. Um, and like I said to someone, you know, when you're heading up to 60, you're looking like this towards the end of your life. And, you know, you're really looking at the last bit. And it's the time I remember the patients go, try turning 16 and that's when things really go wrong. <laughs> yes, risky 60, but um, yeah, do your best. So that's what I'm looking at. I look at stuff and I try to make, shit, make it actionable so that for a large part, a lot of people can implement it without, because it's not that hard. Clean water, clean air, clean food. It's not that hard. It's simple. It's, and it's simple for most people if you connect to why it's so important. Uh, and then I add in always the caveat that it's also not simple for a lot of people for socioeconomic reasons, food deserts, you know, around the world, there are so many reasons why clean food, clean water are actually extremely difficult. You said that to a mum in Flint, Michigan, she'd say, oh, let me tell you about clean water. We haven't had any for years. Uh, and so I often feel there's therefore a duty for anyone who does have access to prioritise it um, because the less of us that are in a sense of urgency around our medical needs, the more we can actually have our eyes wider open in terms of service to the community, uh, you know, didactive thinking, critical thinking when it comes to who to vote for and all of those um, faculties uh, that energy to actually do good beyond ourselves, uh, I think is amazing. It's actually a privilege to be in a spot to be able to do that. And I think it's therefore essential. You know, a lot of people say, oh, but you know, what's me eating three organic items, making that small change going to do? It's like everything sends a message. Anyone who can even afford to change three things makes a powerful market message as a collective if lots and lots of people do that and says, oh, oh, look at this graph. There's a slight increase in organic produce again this quarter. That's the consumer trend. We need more organic farmers. You know, how do we then help support those farmers to transition? And Like I genuinely think there's a sense of urgency around personal responsibility if you have access and can at this juncture. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that is the caveat. If you have access and can, um, I think, yeah, I am very conscious about the things I post. I'm mm. very you are, yeah. I feel a real responsibility to be inclusive, but also to draw attention to the things that perhaps could be better in this world. Mm. Yeah, um, you do, and you do it so well. Mm, thanks. So, yeah, that's that's really why I do this stuff. Also because um, some of my patients say that they kind of need a little bit of a reminder. So I thought, okay, cool, I will. But I'll do it so that everybody can hopefully do a little bit of something. Like, I can do that. Rather than they go, ooh, how did she do that? Well, I can do that. That's basically what I want, want them to say. I can do that. I can make those choices. I can do that. It's not hard. I'd love people to be able to, to say that after seeing what I do. I mean, of course, we're looking at privileged people who've got, you know, 
hopefully some income, have got enough health to maybe stand up, um, all of those things. But these are all privileges. People take it granted. There's such a privilege. Yeah, um, I think once if you've been, I mean, you've been chronically ill from mold, I have, and it puts a whole different perspective. You build a whole bunch more caveats and compassion um, through a journey like that, I think, and and a lot more gratitude for the joy in simply being able to move or being able to make yourself a beautiful fresh salad. Um, and, yeah, I think uh, it's a blessing and a curse, something like um, severe illness. And I wanted to then ask you, because you obviously attracted some pretty tricky patients, some pretty tricky cases in your time, um, where when those basics can't even be done, what do what do you do? What do you do for the chronic uh, fatigue patient who can't move when lymphatic flow and blood flow are so essential? to getting better is is that when you bring in those supplements and encourage better blood flow and you know like how how do we help those people when someone's listening right now thinking oh, I can't even do that I'm such a fail I can never get better because there are people saying that to themselves and I'm always conscious of that and I think god I've been there where I could barely walk my kid to school who lived, like, you know, our school was 300 metres down the road. It was not hard, um, but it was hard. And uh, and I know what I did, but I just think in you've seen so many more different types of cases that aren't just mould root cause um, oriented. What, what did you do? I think the first thing that I did do for them was believe them and maybe have some idea, not completely, which is why I actually like that film, Unrest, because it gave me a slightly more insight idea of the sort of things that some people have had to deal with when they've got severe MECFS and they're bound or need to be treated with a nasogastric tube because they can't swallow. Um, so the first thing is to believe them. The second thing is to try to find somebody who can help them. And there are a few researchers in Sydney who are actually looking at this and um, maybe trying to get some of their cerebrovascular fluid. Fluid, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And and, and do some testing on it. It just validates them. It validates them. That there is, it gives them some hope. And, you know, the more research we do, in my opinion anyway, the more hope there is. And then, of course, maybe, you know, uh, an appropriate exercise physiologist or something like that who understands MECFS, who can do very gentle movements to get some lymphatic moving. Gently, we might tell them, okay, here's, here it is. There is a difference between a therapeutic diet and a long-term health maintenance diet. So when you're very, 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 very sick, you may have to be very, 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 very strict about your diet. So it's a bit like if you're going to be, I suppose, preservative-free. Let's just say something simple, like preservative-free. Then you're going to go all in for those six weeks. And the body does work in six-week cycles. So you break an arm, six weeks in plus, and you break a leg, two lots of six. And that's your Alex, and she does her foot and she quickly. But most of the time, it's about six weeks. 
And that biblical 40 days and 40 nights, the ancients knew every fairy tale, 40 days, 40 nights. Um, that's how long it takes to actually see a big cycle. So don't give up. Go, oh, preservative-free for three days, no difference. Give it a go. Give it a go. Um, okay, so then when you're completely well, or loads, 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 loads better, if you occasionally have something that's got a preservative in it, it's like you say what you do most of the time and so you can do something yeah, else. We do what we do most of the time so we can go with the flow some of the time. Yeah. Correct. So then um, you can make those concessions, right? But if you are bed-bound, very unwell, if you're lucky enough to have somebody to help you out with some food that's appropriate and fresh and hopefully you can digest, um, I think you do need to be quite quite, quite strict for about six, six weeks or thereabouts. It's kind of like being a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. So you're either soda-free or whatever. Um, or you're not. That's number one. But I think compassion, finding, believing, just trying to find some someone to help them, being an advocate for them. Um, you know, it, it is time. It's time for the practitioner as well, too, because you're always we're up against walls as well, trying to get these people help. Mm. Uh, yeah, when you have no treat, no, diagnose, treat, cure guideline like we still don't have with mold um uh it, it's the it's the category of syndrome isn't it versus disease yeah and yeah you're completely correct and and it is a syndrome so i probably get slammed for saying this but i would say that it's chronic fatigue syndrome to a large it's a it's a spectrum of of illness which manifests slightly differently in each person, I guess depending on their circumstances, their, their genetic predisposition, whatever tipped them over. It's a whole conglomeration of different flavors, if you like. Um, so I think I really did try and get them help somehow, psychological help, physiological help, um, some help getting uh, some investigations done and not just a you know a naturopathic type ones, but which had done it in a proper uh, tertiary or medical research facility. It's so essential that these things are understood. Um, and whilst they may get investigated and they may find abnormalities, say, which can't be done at you know your local Douglas or whatever, the special um, university style labs, uh, you know, it gives some people, people need to be validated, you know. They've been told too many times for too long um, and it's just in your head. Well, maybe to a certain degree because you have got some changes in your head that have happened as a result of all that inflammation. But validation, validation, validation. Um, people really do need to be heard. They really do. Well, you know, I was talking with um, the wonderful Brendan Vermeer the other day um, for a show coming up and he's um, the holistic savage, a young research guy who set up a foundation and everything, just was a PT slash nutrition coach who just saw all this neuroinflammation, had experienced it himself and it catapulted him into a desire to support people. And we were talking about how this it's all in your head thing and what, how many people get told that. And he's like, 
Well, yeah, it's much easier to think positively about your future and changing your diet when you don't have so much neuroinflammation. So how about we start there? You know, there's so many people who their brains are on fire and yes, then there is a lot in your head, Um, but that can be worked on in itself um, once we admit that that's part of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, part of the puzzle, definitely. And it's it's slow and it's incremental, but I think, you know, always have some hope that there can be improvement, maybe not complete reversal, but hopefully improvement. Um, yeah, so that's what I've taken away. I've learned, honestly, I've learned so much from the patients. I've learned so much things that I've never, ever even imagined, like... Um, Okay. Oh, I will. But we'll say breast, like breast implant illness. You know, the first time I saw, I'd never heard of it. I'll be honest, I'd never heard of it. So the first time I saw someone, I thought, oh, yeah, you live in the Morley house, you know, all that damn, can't be doing you any good, blah, blah, blah. And um, after a while, I thought, could it be your implants? You're, you know, middle-aged and uh, the rest of that. And then, thankfully, I saw, thank God, for people like Professor Deva, People who at least believe you enough to conduct studies. Mm, that's it. Well, <laughs> hello, hello, women's health research. So new. We finally started believing women thinking, hey, maybe, maybe if it's all these women, we need to do some research, you know. And that brings me to the next point. A lot of studies don't have women in them. They're white men. So we need to look at women's studies, different ethnicities, different, you know, different circumstances. So these are all the shortcomings of of studies, not to say that they're useless, but there needs to be more. And I guess that's it, right? There has to be more. We need to evolve. We need to learn more. We don't need to admit we don't know everything. Um, because we don't. Uh, except for you know a few vague things that I know for sure that it's good to have clean air, clean water, and clean food if you can. Um, yeah. So that's my five cents worth anyway. Yeah. And so do you feel like that that piece is is missing in the in the wellness space online the admission that we're all just doing the best we can with the science we have now with our interpretation of that science or someone else's uh and get those basics right but always leave room for ah oh, yeah I'm open to hearing what you have to say about that as well Oh, I agree. I agree with you completely. I think that is one of the uh, current uh, heartaches, really, actually, the silos of, of the wellness space, but also the conventional allopathic space as well, the full of silos, right? So to give an example, I probably went to a shop there and I said, well, you know, it's wear blue for NBCFS day today. Um, it's really important that these people are believed. They go, oh, well, you know, I used to have this, but I fixed myself. All I need to do is fast for four days and hop in my sauna and I'm good. And that's what we need to do. And I thought, fantastic for you, but not for everyone. It's not the cure all. We need to at least go, okay, these, this is wrong. People have a constellation of, as you say, symptoms, which then become a syndrome. And then how can we try and help these people? Because the same thing ain't going to work for everyone. It might work for most people, but not everyone. Same with, I suppose, chemotherapy, medications, asthma medications, anti-inflammatories. 
It works for many people, but not everyone. Yeah, and the small group that it doesn't work for becomes the, this is not the be-all, end-all. This is not black and white. Yeah, it's not black and white. If I can, yeah, we could maybe just be flexible and say, look, don't know it all, not black and white, let's look into this. Uh, yeah, but here, yeah, like you talk about the overlaps, where the overlap is. Um, yeah, anyway. It's an exciting time. Yeah. What are you excited about in medicine? Oh, I don't know about medicine. Um, <laughs> what am I excited about? I am excited to be alive. That's number one. I'm excited that um, uh, it sounds mean, but I am excited that maybe uh, long COVID is starting to bring awareness to people with long chronic illness, some high profile people who have suffered from long COVID as well, maybe bringing some awareness to it that, hey, you know, it's not just in, they're not just crazy or making this, it's real. We need to look at, and, and so many people are sick with it. And no, it's not just because they eat junk. If they didn't eat junk, you know, they wouldn't get it. Um, we don't know that. We don't know that, um, but at least we're gonna look at it, hopefully. And um, I think there's a parliamentary inquiry um, coming up soon. Uh, you know, listen to these people, find out what's going on. Every little bit helps. You know, you can't have um, perfect being the enemy of good. Ah, oh, what a great place to finish. You can't have perfect being the enemy of good. Absolutely. Thanks, Min. Thank you Thank so you. much for joining me. Such a great conversation. You are a ball of positive energy on the internet and I thank you for it, um, seeing as we don't get to see you in person. But, uh, yeah, really great chat and I appreciate your wisdom and your flexibility within that wisdom always. And I really appreciate all you do in this space as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Min. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us 
get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Low Tox Life.